All right, welcome back. This is the QTR Podcast. Man, it's been a long-ass time since I've done a podcast. First and foremost, I want to thank you guys for hanging in there during this dry spell over the last couple of weeks. I've had some personal issues that I have been dealing with that have taken up an immense amount of my time. Uh, Hopefully, a majority of that is behind me, and I can continue back to my somewhat normal podcast schedule, which is basically doing a podcast whenever I want and not really caring what my schedule is to begin with. Having said that, I want to thank my extremely flexible supporters and patrons who keep this podcast running, the people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast, like my long-term friends over at JM Bullion, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion from. Folks, last week I just wrote an article on my blog, Fringe Finance, about how China and Russia are basically trying to challenge the U.S. dollar with their own new global reserve currency. There's really never been a better time to take a look at owning gold and silver bullion. And the best part is I love JM Bullion. They turn around my orders quickly. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They've been in business for nearly a decade now. And QTR podcast listeners have their own rep over there, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email if you don't feel like dealing with the website, if you want a little personalized attention. If you have questions about buying gold and silver bullion, she'd be happy to help. She's an incredible resource. The site, wonderful people over there at JM Bullion. They don't give me any shit at all. Like, for instance, this last month where I haven't done a podcast, none of my sponsors have reached out to me and say, where's the content? Where's the content? You know, either they just don't care enough, which is great, you know, if that's the case, (laughs) but they're just very flexible and they don't give me a hard time. And that's why I love shouting them out and supporting them on the podcast. So if you need gold and silver bullion, go over to JM Bullion and tell somebody that QTR sent you. Keeps me in business, keeps the podcast going. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room, the number one piece of software for tracking unusual options activity and flow in the options market, which by the way, two weeks ago or a week ago, worked out great for Pinterest. Been watching a lot of flow come into Pinterest call options, uh, specifically in the August 20, I think, in the 21 strikes. Wall Street Jesus was posting about it, and two or three days later, boom, all of a sudden we get the headline, Elliot has taken a stake in Pinterest. The stock went up 10%. I made some decent coin on those options, all because Wall Street Jesus pointed it out. You can check out Lucci and Wall Street Jesus Their links are in my podcast description, the links to the Steam Room, which is their incredible piece of software that they have been perfecting for 10 years nearly, is also in the podcast description. If you want to try anything free, let them know QTR sent you. They'll make sure you get hooked up with a free trial, no credit card, no bullshit, no nonsense. I like Lucci, I like Wall Street Jesus, and I like George Gammon, another supporter of mine over at Rebel Capitalist. George needs no introduction. He's got something like a million YouTube subscribers now. He's holding global conferences like once a month. The man has basically turned into like a fucking international uh, man of mystery. I see him flying all over the world, jet setting and nice suits. George Gammon would be what I am if I actually understood finance and didn't sit around drinking citywide specials on the weekends and decided I wanted to try and be productive. He is uh, George Gammon's popularity comes for a reason, though. The guy knows what he's talking about. He knows his shit. Uh, And really him, Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, Rebel Capitalist Pro. It's a wonderful platform to help you understand the out of control world of central banks, which right now uh, it's just 
impossible to try to figure out on your own. So George provides great context, and he's a great guy. I love Rebel Capitalist Pro. You can try it for free. Check the link in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Doomberg, one of my favorite substacks to read. Doomberg takes a skeptical lens on the economy. They're experts in things like commodities and energy. Just the other side of the coin that you're not going to get on CNBC. You're not going to get on Bloomberg. And uh, I just love them. I love uh, reading their stuff. I read every single article they put out for the most part. And uh, good friends of mine been happy to help them out since they got started. And they are also, like George Gammon, blowing past me on the uh, Substack and podcasting highway, which, by the way, I love. Okay? I love. Because if a guy like George Gammon gets out there and gets popular, he's delivering a great message and great information, great understanding of a complex problem that not a lot of people understand. And he's doing it in a way that most people can understand, uh, you know, when CNBC, the mainstream media, isn't really delivering it. And to be honest with you, I don't care if it's me or him or whoever. You know, I prefer that it's a guy like George because he understands the economy better than I do. You know, so I, I root for these people's success. I absolutely love to see it. I love my little pocket here on the corner of the Internet, and I get to talk to you guys on my podcast and talk to some of my friends. Um, but I couldn't be happier for my friends that have seen success like George and my friends over at Doomberg. So big kiss sending you guys lots of love. All right. Happy to fucking be here today. Can't believe I have the Montana skeptic on for the first time in a long time. We're bringing it back to our roots. Man, I had this guy on back when Tesla was $1 a share and his price target was zero. <laughs> now it's a trillion dollars a share and we are forging forward together through the muck and the mire to try to bring you an iota of truth in the world of Tesla and Elon Musk. It is my wonderful pleasure to introduce, uh, reintroduce Mr. Montana Skeptic, who, uh, man, one of, starting to become like one of my podcast. Oh, I heard a noise in the background. we got to start over. No, I'm just fucking around. Um, who was like one of my original uh, podcast guests back in the day. A guy like took a chance and came on my podcast when I first started, when I had zero listeners. And uh, always classes up the joint a little bit. I'll try not to curse today. Uh, I think you and Ron Paul are the only two people I try not to curse for. Mr. Skeptic, uh, how are you? Terrific. Thanks, Chris. Good to talk to you. It's great to have you on, and I can't think of a better time to have you on with everything that's going on here in the world of Tesla and Mr. Musk and his 76-year-old father who has apparently taken it upon itself, upon himself to uh, sleep with as many women as possible, including uh, family members. But let's just put that aside for a second, and I want to kind of just throw you a curveball to start with. Sure. Um, and I want to get your take on the macro economy real quick, because we don't ever really talk. And so much has changed profoundly since the last time you've been on. Just where's your head at? I know you like to qualify things. You don't you know, generally take a stance in one direction or the other, as lawyers do. What's your whole take on this Fed raising rates thing? Are they going to be able to pull this off or what? That's... I mean, that's way beyond my, my <laughs> pay grade, Chris. Uh, it's, it's really a difficult position they're in, right? Um, it, it, the size of the debt burden that the United States has is so large that the interest rates necessary to kill inflation might just swallow the federal budget with interest charges. Um, it's, a, it's a really tough position, and I hate to blame it all on the Fed, 
and Congress has a huge role in this. The president has a huge role in this. They spend like drunken sailors. And right. so we've run up a huge debt. And, you know, monetary policy is very important, but so is fiscal policy. And I, I know you pay close attention to Jim Grant and the people who focus on, um, you know, observing interest rates. And obviously the Fed has suppressed the most important price in the economy, interest rates. So it's hard to know. Uh, what the true value of anything is. We've seen enormous asset price inflation. And as interest rates rise, inevitably, just the, the fact of the, you know, the multiple compression that took place means that we're going to see lower valuations. Right. And all the people who feel so rich with their financial assets are going to feel a little bit less comfortable. I, I Are we in a recession? I kind of think we are based on the data that we see. And so now we have an argument about, well, is this recession different from others for a lot of reasons? So on the macro economy, one thing I'm pretty confident about is that a lot of the so-called unicorns uh, or shit codes, as some people call them, are going to face some heavy sledding. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I try not to curse when I'm on with you, and we're yeah. nine minutes into the podcast, and you just said shit codes. Yeah, no, I'm quoting quoting other financial uh, people. Uh, oh, that was okay. a quotation. But, uh-huh. you, I mean, the, the for example, the, the Kathy Wood ARC portfolio, that, that stuff is mostly very low quality, some no earnings at all, and some very small earnings relative to the share price. I think, you know, you're going to see a major and you're starting to see a major rethinking of how investing should happen. We've gone from absolutely a casino environment during the pandemic to something that's a little more sober. And I think there's a long way to go. Yeah. What's your take on the White House's stance on energy policy right now? Um, You know, I, I wrote about this a week or two ago and how petulant and embarrassing I think the administration's war on energy has been. Meanwhile, you have the president flying over to Saudi Arabia to kiss the ring of uh, Mohammed bin Salman and beg him for more oil. Uh, And then he returns home here and and ridicules and vilifies our domestic oil companies. I I know you have a background, I think, in, in, in oil and gas investing. I'd love your take on that. Well, as you might guess, I think that our energy policy is horribly misguided. Um, And let me make a pitch for a book here that I I find really insightful. It's called How the World Really Works by Vaclav Smil, S-M-I-L, a terrific book showing you how in so many ways that we never consider we are very dependent on fossil fuels. And what Smil, you know, does in, in arguing all this and pointing it out, he's a very amazing renaissance mind, is um, to say, hey, we do, you know, there is a climate problem. We are seeing uh, climate change. It's very possible, if not likely, that it's caused by anthropogenic activity, right? That it's anthropogenic in nature caused by humans. And, um, but to address it, you know, we have, on the one hand, you have these apocalypse now, people and who who are the the sort of radical environmentalists. And on the other hand, you have people who say, well, we'll just innovate our way out of this with innovations to be determined later. And he argues for a more sensible approach. And um, that sensible approach has absolutely got to include nuclear. And it has got to acknowledge the central importance of fossil fuels. And it has got to come to grips with some of the fantasies about renewable fuel, namely that you can have it without backup. You can't. 
And because the sun, as we know, doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow and batteries as backup are hugely expensive and come with massive environmental costs. So I think our energy policy, like that of Europe, is terribly misguided and it's it's been steered by governments. And, you know, I think the EV craze is part of a very misguided misallocation of capital driven by government mandates and subsidies. Because in an EV, you're hauling around a massive battery, which has huge environmental costs to go and find the metals and materials in that battery. And is very difficult to recycle if if it's recyclable at all. And um, the the benefits of EVs have been very overblown, especially relative to hybrids and other sensible solutions. So uh, I regret the, you know, I feel like I'm living back in the Jimmy Carter days, except even Carter had more awareness than this about the importance of fossil fuels. Yeah, it's funny, too. I just saw somebody make the very simple analog on Twitter yesterday about EVs and cell phone batteries. You know, you're driving around a giant cell phone battery. Your cell phone doesn't hold a charge after a while, and the same thing happens to your EV. And, you know, talking about the, the not only the the resource drain from mining all of the metals necessary to create the batteries, but the, the human capital cost, uh, you know, how those metals are being mined. Um, and then ultimately balancing that with where the power comes from to charge your battery uh which is something you know I, I guess that's one iteration further than the administration's talking points so i don't expect half the nation to understand it or to think that critically or deeply but you know in essence you have like you said a, a government subsidized solution to a problem that didn't necessarily warrant action to begin with and well what do we have we have an entire revamp an entire government-subsidized revamp of a massive legacy industry that's supposed to be affecting change, and everybody's coming home and plugging their electric vehicle batteries into the wall to get power coming from a you know coal power plant. <laughs> yeah, it's like fucking talk about like much ado about nothing, right? Like a big uh, a big circus out of uh, out of the sky for no reason to to get right back to where we started. Almost there are sensible solutions, though. Well, you know the irony you see in Germany today—they're burning more more coal than ever um, yeah. because they've allowed themselves to get in this position. And finally, there some people there are starting to talk about, hey, maybe it's not such a good idea to shut down our nuclear plants, right? Well, well, now, that, now that they've decommissioned all of them, right? Well, you know, Andreas Hopf calls it the external combustion engine. You can have an internal combustion engine or an external combustion engine. And until we have a clean grid, which, you know, there will never be a 100% clean grid. It takes enormous energy inputs just to create even a nuclear plant, never mind the turbines on a, on, on wind generation, et cetera, but, um, and, or solar panels, all the materials that go into those um, Anyway, yeah, I, th- I think the energy policy of the United States and of the Western world in general has been hideously misguided, yeah. and it's tragic. And uh, as Doomberg points out, it not only means less energy and a shivering winter, it means that people are going to starve in, in developing nations because mm-hmm. um, the, the natural gas needed to make the nitrogen, needed to make the fertilizer that feeds 8 billion people on Earth, excuse me, eight, did I say billion? Yeah, um, is, is not going to be available. 
So it'll be Sri Lanka on steroids here. Nobody fact checks anything I say on my podcast anyway, so don't worry about don't worry about numbers. Just throw out whatever you want. But yeah, I mean, right. uranium, uh, uranium, nuclear, really, like this is what happens when you put feelings in hysteria over pragmatism and reason. And I've written about nuclear for the last year on my blog off and on with the rudimentary understanding that I have of it. But I mean, it, it seems like such a sensible solution that we can create immense amounts of power, uh, you know, that could, in essence, if we adopt it on a broad scale, solve a good portion of the world's energy crisis that it's in right now. And uh, and people can't get over the fact that, you know, Chernobyl happened, uh, you know, and they just kind of wrongfully um, associate, you know, these outlier incidents with the uh, with nuclear's actual safety profile which is that it's you know extremely safe and you see yeah, the Nord- and, and it's it's gotten safer is the truth with the with the newer technologies but and and it, everything comes with trade-offs even nuclear of course sure um, but until you start acknowledging that everything comes with trade-offs it's um it's difficult to make any progress in terms of critical thinking well and with 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 evs you know to transition from energy to evs you know Energy, we're having this crisis because we are creating policy in the West, as I said, based on based on hysteria and not so much on pragmatism and reasoning. And in the world of electric vehicles, this same thing has happened, right? We, the, the governments around the world have decided they want to subsidize uh, electric vehicles, forcing all of these legacy manufacturers to endure these drastic shifts to their business models that nobody planned for and nobody, uh, you know, it would have happened eventually. The market would have made it happen eventually because people would have been concerned about green energy enough that, you know, these changes would have happened. But you have the government jamming these changes down the throat of the industry and behold, you know, you turn around one day and Elon Musk is the richest person in the world just despite, in my opinion, not having really produced any of the financial uh results necessary to uh ascertain such status and so behold uh, in addition to malinvestment and poor resource allocation uh, we have birthed uh, this monster now who yeah. uh let's talk about elon musk <laughs> uh, <laughs> who tried well, to get talk, you I mean, fired from your job first and foremost okay yeah oh you know Chris, um, it's and he's done so many more, even horrible things to so many other people. Uh, so here's um, here's I want to talk today about this Twitter merger, right? Because to me, it's a great irony that the man that is lauded as the world's greatest visionary and genius has made what I think is probably the stupidest business deal of my lifetime. When you consider the magnitude of it, and He's now desperately looking for a way out, and he's so used to getting his way in yep. every conceivable forum and fashion that um, it hasn't occurred to him that he might not this time. Right. And I think uh, people are are seriously underestimating, though less and less every day, the risk he faces of being required to buy this company for $44 billion yep. in the Delaware Chancery Court of Chancery, right? So... You know, the chancellor is a woman named Kathleen McCormick, and 
a lot of people are learning for the first time more about Delaware, Delaware Court of Chancery, which is a fascinating thing, right? The, in the old um, English common law system, you had a court of law and a court of equity, and Delaware imported that system into uh, its own court system. And it's the only state in the United States now that has a separate court of equity, I think, that handles equitable matters, you know, besides, you know, uh, guardianships and uh, trusts and estates, it, it handles um, all the injunctions, all the injunctive relief. And, and in a separate line of development that, that's closely tied to this court of chancery, Delaware has become the go-to state for corporate law. It developed corporate, you know, it developed a corporate code early on when New Jersey and New York were competing for all the corporations. Delaware said, hey, I can do this too. And they uh, made the, their court of chancery the place to go to to develop a body of case law, decision law, along with their statutory corporate code that is very corporation friendly. And so you have a lot of corporations that choose Delaware for their state of incorporation and choose their internal governance to be governed by Delaware law because it's well developed, it's reliable, it's predictable, and it's very shareholder friendly and business friendly. And that's really important. And um, if if you were going to look at a case that's come out of that court, that is, in my opinion, the most important case to look at, it's a case decided just a couple of years ago by Kathleen McCormick. Okay, she's now the chancellor. Okay, in the Delaware court, there's one chancellor appointed by the governor for a 12-year term. And um, that used to be all there was. Then over the years, they've had vice chancellors appointed. Now there are six vice chancellors, each appointed for a 12-year term also. And they have to be, the political parties have to match. You have to have the same number of Republicans as Democrats, and which is interesting. So it makes it more of a nonpartisan affair um, for them to be doing this. And I, I think Kathleen McCormick may be affiliated with no party, actually. Anyway, uh, the idea that that this is somehow a shadowy court, which is what I'm reading, compared to states where you know one party controls the state and they elect all the judges, or where the you know the governor appoints all the judges from his own political party and his own cronies, it's just not at all the case in Delaware, and the state has a huge interest in remaining a, a reliable place for business to know that they're going to have their contracts enforced. Right. So while Kathleen McCormick was just a vice chancellor, um, she was only she became appointed chancellor, I think, in May of 2021. When she was a vice chancellor, she had a case called uh, Decopac Holdings come before her. Okay, and this was a buyout by one of these buyout firms. In fact, the Kohlberg firm. If you've ever heard of KKR, uh, Kohlberg used to be the partner of Kravis, right? And so they're a sophisticated buyout firm, and. Um, in March of 2020, just as the pandemic was getting going, they decided to buy this cake decorating company that sold cake de decorations and technology to supermarkets so that they could make their in-store bakery, you know, use it in their in-store bakeries. And uh, they agreed upon a price. And then the pandemic happened and the sales fell off at the cake company and Kohlberg looked for a way out of this deal. And the Court in a really meticulous, careful, and, and often funny opinion, takes apart the entire claims of Kohlberg and sees that the ways, the, them looking for a way out of this deal was not a material adverse event. There were facts that were much worse than the ones in the Twitter case. I mean, worse for the uh, 
for the seller. Uh, for example, Kohlberg was unable to get its financing, but the court determined that Kohlberg itself prevented the financing from happening by, by insisting on terms that were unreasonable, and she invoked the so-called prevention doctrine. Um, there were other bad facts. You know, the, the seller's lawyers had tried to get inserted into the carve-outs of material adverse event, a carve-out for pandemics and epidemics, and the, the uh, buyer's lawyers refused to do that. They, but they said, you're already covered by governmental action and other things, general economic conditions. So Kohlberg, you know, at trial said, hey, look, Judge, they tried for this carve out and we didn't give it to them. So that means that the pandemic is a material, materially adverse event. But the judge saw through all that, looked at what had actually been said in the negotiations. And um, she she said, you are going to pay the full price you agreed to pay. By the way, they'd gotten a one price cut already. The uh, the buyers had. And she said, even though you have no debt financing, I don't care. You find a way to pay for this. And she ordered them to perform. And lo and behold, they had to perform. And she said more than that. She said, you know, um, the, an order of specific performance which is what this was. It's an equitable remedy. You must specifically perform what you promised to perform. You must do what you promised to do. She said that seldom results in performance within the time the contract requires because th this case was decided outside the drop-dead date for the agreement. And um, she said, so to that end, damages for the delay will usually be appropriate. So she, she also awarded prejudgment interest. She said, you're going to pay, Kohlberg, you're not only going to pay them the price you agreed to pay, you're going to pay interest on it from the time you were supposed to close to now. Um, that's a really stout opinion. And it lays out the entire logic that you're going to see in in the um, Musk, you know, Twitter v. Musk uh, dispute. So I remember uh, Elon Musk uh, incorporated Tesla, governed by Delaware law, SpaceX governed by Delaware law. The parties in this merger agreement agreed that Delaware law would govern their agreement. And, you know, you know, you had sophisticated lawyers on every side. And for people not to expect that she is going to make the same ruling in this case, I think, is blind and unrealistic. And it's certainly a huge risk that it's going to happen. Um, so, you know, I, I ref, you know, I refer my friends to the Decopac case. It's a really enlightening, entertaining opinion and a good preview of what you're going to see. Yeah, and let me just wrap up what you said with a bow for my listeners, many of whom are three, four, sometimes even five beers deep at this point. You know, Musk, you made a great point at the beginning of of that uh, speech there, which is that Musk is used to getting his way. He got his way with the Vern Unsworth trial. He got his way by worming out of the uh, funding secured, faking the $80 billion buyout. He's gotten his way kind of warming himself out of this NHTSA crosshairs while these cars accelerate on their own on roads across the United States, putting other people's lives in danger. You know, as Bill Burr said about Arnold Schwarzenegger, the guy's batting a thousand, you know, like <laughs> he hasn't fucking missed yet. And so all of those things have likely reinforced to him uh, the delusion that he can just do whatever he wants. And really, you know, everybody knows that people like that eventually wind up getting their comeuppance. The question is when and who is going to deliver it to him? And and so yeah. what what has what challenge has he 
not faced yet. He hasn't met somebody that just won't buy the bullshit, that has a spine, that has a backbone, that's interested in fairness and interested in truth and justice in the way, really, you know, you just <clears throat> just need a, a modicum of interest in those things to see him for what he is. And it seems like this McCormick, who, by the way, is, uh, I think was appointed by a Democrat, but I'm not sure if she's political either, um, may very well be the side of the mountain that the Musk plane finally, you know, crashes into. And it's certainly an interesting um, environment for this to be taking place because not only is $44 billion a pretty consequential amount of money, but the market is also in turmoil. And so this, you know, there's an argument for him being in a in a far more precarious situation than people even understand. And as I tweeted out yesterday or two days ago, the, the only thing that's the glue that's holding this whole tragic house of cards together is Tesla's stock price. If we woke up tomorrow and that stock was at $100 a share, I think his empire just ends there, regardless of what this court adjudicates. Yeah, well, I, you know, this Tesla share price is remains elevated beyond anything I would ever have guessed. Just to be clear, I have no position in Tesla. I haven't had one for several years. I don't intend to establish one. But I think this is Waterloo for Musk, and it's because of his own egomaniacal narcissism that he, you know, impulsively decided he would announce that he's buying this company, right. and then after being the hero of the sort of left wing for a long time, he decides to be the hero of the right wing, right. and suddenly he's a, he's going to restore Donald Trump's voice on Twitter, and he's going to reform Twitter. Anybody that believed all that stuff, I think, you know. It, I, I was astonished at the people on the right who were so quick to swallow that story. Yeah. He, he's, um, he's an utterly amoral person without any ethical compass, in my view. But in Delaware, what, what he's confronting in Delaware is a court that wants to be business friendly. Now, people say, well, look, he won the Solar City case. Well, it's on appeal, and it was a disappointing yeah, decision. Yep. But <clears throat> look at that in its totality, okay? Delaware places a big emphasis on a fully informed vote of shareholders. And in that case, you had two things. You had shareholders who definitely voted for the deal, and you had shareholders who did so and stayed in the company and made a lot of money, okay? Um, and Delaware and its courts are not about substituting their decisions from the bench with shareholder decisions. So as many things as bother me about that case you have to understand those were the really driving facts in the Solar City case, which again the, the Delaware Supreme Court will have a say on that. Now the Twitter case is, is the opposite. Do the shareholders of Twitter want Musk to be able to walk the deal? Absolutely not. And you know, does a Delaware company want the court to blow up the contract? Uh, does Twitter, which is a Delaware company, want that? No. Would its shareholders lose money or make money, right, if the court enforces the contract? Obviously, they make a lot of money. So who wants to blow this contract up? Elon Musk does, not the shareholders, not the company that incorporated in Delaware that pays its fees and supports the economy of Delaware. So the business-friendly decision here is, is obvious. The business-friendly decision is to honor what the parties intended when they signed their agreement, advised by bankers, advised by lawyers, and that contract expressly says that a remedy is specific performance. If the if the uh, seller doesn't perform as promised, the buyer can specifically 
uh, can, can ask the court to make it specifically perform its, its obligations. And um, that does no violence to the intentions of the parties when they made the contract. It honors that intention. Okay. So, yeah, I think the Delaware court knew the Solar City deal had a lot of hair on it. But because of Musk, because he really inserted himself into the deal far more than he pretended to. But they sucked it down to do what the shareholders of Tesla voted for and wanted. Okay. Um, and in the end, they sided with the corporation, not the plaintiff's lawyer. I think that's what's going to happen here. And I think that that DecoPack decision is just, you know, a, a nice roadmap for what you're going to see in terms of how the judge analyzes the case. Yeah, I completely forgot about the uh, the Solar City thing when I was, you know, listing his remarkable his escapes, his narrow escapes. <laughs> yeah, his narrow escapes, right? His remarkable list of narrow escapes. But uh, that's just, yeah. I mean, you almost can't even blame him for, for for just going for it at this point to to get out of that to 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 kind of duck responsibility when it came to the solar city merger is just baffling. I just saw yesterday too, by the way, only semi related that they had halted, uh, solar roof installs completely. I think, right. Did they announce that on this, on this last call? Uh, I think it was an article in electric. I don't know that they announced it on the call. I haven't read the whole transcript of the call yet, you know? And so it's just like, so ends another one of, uh, of his farcical ideas, like the battery swap, just, you know, I don't know. What do you what do you think about this ongoing NHTSA investigation? I mean, do you think these guys finally have found their spine? I'm, I I don't get it. To me, there seems to be such an overwhelming amount of evidence in the public domain to be, you know, to elicit genuine concern over these cars that are on the road. Um, and I saw something happened in Germany, I think, last week where they forced some type of recall. But uh, certainly anything involving a recall of, of autopilot or, you know, concerning uh, having to roll back anything involving full self-driving, that, that kind of represents another, like, existential threat to the company, doesn't it? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think in Germany it was somebody, somebody who won a, a legal proceeding to require Tesla to buy back their car. Oh, okay. But because um, I think there were defects in the structure – it was just had just been built maybe in Germany. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things that should be happening. I mean, autopilot is so frightfully dangerous the way it is um, oversold. And that's thanks to Elon Musk. Full self-driving is is nowhere near imminent like he pretends it is. And, uh, you know, there's such potential liability there. There the, the sudden intended acceleration issues have yet to be resolved elon and look at even in the twitter deal the guy broke the um securities law by not reporting his acquisition of the stock in a timely way and yeah. um so th there's a lot of different reasons why the musk you know why why tesla's share value is in, at risk of falling back to earth and getting closer to reality at some point which one will happen? I don't know. But the the, pro the Twitter deal, of course, is a problem because Musk, you know, he originally had two financing components to his deal. One of them was a margin loan. And, right. it, and everybody hated that and pointed out how he was going to saddle the company with just huge amounts of interest payments. 
Twitter once it was private. And so Musk sold like $9.8 billion of stock, right, to, to get rid of the, the margin piece of the, uh, of the loan. And that depressed Tesla's share price. I think Musk's lowest price when he sold that stock was like $822 a share. And Tesla's traded a lot lower than that since then. Um, I, I don't know what it closed at yesterday. I know it's had a real crazy run this week. So it's almost back to that lowest level, not quite. So clearly Musk knows how to extract maximum value. But he would have to sell another, uh, I don't know, uh, if you do all the math, he could potentially be on the hook for uh, at least another $14 billion of Tesla stock that he needs to sell. And who knows what's going on. He announced he had $7.1 billion in equity commitments from other investors. Are they sticking with him? How solid are those things? Right. Who knows? So if he has to start selling his Tesla stock to fund this purchase, which you know, I think is what eventually happens. Um, you're going to depress the price of Tesla further. And um, then he's going to be juggling not only SpaceX and Tesla and uh, the boring company and Neuralink, but also you can add Twitter to the list. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's certainly bad for Tesla shareholders. And I, as I say, I don't think they're fully appreciating it. They, they also don't appreciate that if, if Musk wants to appeal, they say, well, he can appeal and tie this up forever. The appeal would go to the Delaware Supreme Court, which would act pretty quickly. And guess what? He has to post a bond. He has to post a bond or some other adequate form of security that the trial court thinks is secure or that the Delaware Supreme Court thinks is secure in order to do that. So that's... An appeal does him really no good. He's going to have to come up with a, a bond, something just like cash, to get there. And who's going to loan this guy forty-four billion to park in the 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 uh, you know in the office of the treasurer of the court of chancery while this thing is on appeal? Yeah, so. and certainly shareholders who have been along for the ride for you know this isn't there's an odd like human psychological element to this whole thing because this isn't, this isn't the type of situation where shareholders I think are just going to wake up one day and realize, Oh, you know, this guy is morally and ethically uh, not what I'm looking for from a, uh, from a fiduciary. And I need to, you know, move my capital out of this uh, company. They're in for a penny in for a pound. And they've, if they've put up with everything thus far, with Musk, there's not going to be anything that he can do that's going to put them off the stock. So shareholders, I think, are going to have their own Waterloo of sorts, to use your term, where they're just going to wake up one morning and it's just going to be over and it's going to be over quickly and they're not going to have time to think about it and they're not going to have time to plan their move to the exits. Um, and if it's not this, if it's not the existential threat created here by the by the Twitter deal and it's not the NHTSA, it's going to be something else. And I'm not saying Tesla's going to go bankrupt, but I'm saying that there is still a major re-rating for this company, I think, that needs to happen. I mean, what do yeah. you have? You have a legacy – you have an auto manufacturer right now. That That's it. You have a legacy yeah. auto manufacturer being valued as an aggressively growing 
technology company, which it isn't, you know, whose head of AI and autopilot just resigned a week right. or two ago, you know, the world, uh, world leading AI, world leading autopilot. It was, it was so wonderful. The, uh, the, the, the head of the department decided to take off. Um, and I just think that, you know, I don't know what it's going to take for the market to re-rate this company. I don't really well, care. It, it will take time. It, if nothing else happens, it takes time. Because what you have is not only a, a legacy automaker with, you know, uh, a high capital needs. You They make unreliable cars, intense, and then they have terrible service intense. for the cars once they're made. So, um, yeah, if it, when it comes back down to earth and gets the same multiples that other auto companies trade at, that's a major issue. But let's look at, never mind the Tesla shareholders, for whom I feel very little sympathy, except for those who are now stuck with Tesla and their index funds, thanks to the S&P 500 committee. But the, t the Twitter shareholders have seen their company gutted, okay? Yeah, that's right. Now, when I work in law, you know, I was involved in several buyout deals. And what the target company would always say to the acquirer is, hey, listen, we would like to sign retention bonuses with our key people. We, you don't want them to leave when you buy the company. You want these people to be here. So what we'd right. like to agree is if they stay with us for, say, at least six months or nine months or a year after we make the acquisition, you they will then earn a bonus equal to, I don't know, three months of compensation or something like that extra. And typically, the, the buyer says, yeah, that's a great idea. We approve of that. Let's do it. And in this case, Twitter asked Musk to do that. And he said, nope, not going to do it. And so you've had an exodus of people from Twitter. And you can fight about all the left-wing, right-wing censorship, this, that. But the, the company has been gutted in terms of a lot of its key people. And that's really bad for Twitter. And its share price has taken a hammering. And Musk has dominated the news. And he's publicly disparaged them when he promised he wouldn't. Right. And he's done it endlessly. And he's violated his agreement by releasing confidential information of Twitter. And, um, you know... I, I think a court is going to look at all this and say, look what you've done. You came here, promised to buy this company, Mr. Hero. Yep. And when you did it, you said you're going to cure. The problem is too many bots. You're going to cure that problem. Right. You're going to fire people. And now you're saying uh, you're not buying the company because there's too many bots. When the when bots and spam isn't even mentioned in your agreement, all you're talking about is that, right. that MDAU, you know, monetizable daily average users or usage, you know, which – is is an, is a made up metric that Twitter has that's so easily defensible and that they completely outline in their securities filings how they calculate it. I just I think I think it's a joke that he's I I don't see him prevailing in this lawsuit. I see this as a Waterloo. I see him being required to buy this company and if the if the lenders pull out it will be his doing and the court will say okay you can just pay what they were going to pay. So um and also, you know, he, there's a real problem here. How do you settle this case? Well, you'd have to strike a new deal with Musk. Well, who trusts him any longer to perform any deal? He makes, <laughs> right. Right. Who trusts that guy? The guy is uh, he's persona non grata in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street. And the only place where they love him, you know, where he's trusted, I guess, <laughs> is China, where they have their, his, their, their foot on his throat. Right. So, they don't really trust him. They probably see him as no. an asset. They have they have their foot on his throat and they know it. That's where you that's where you use cheap labor to get cheap parts and cheap cars and ship them to Europe. And um, that's how you you know, that's how Tesla's been surviving.
its profits largely come from China. All under the guise of saving the planet. You know, where's the where? What's going on in the lithium mines, right? All yeah. under the guise of saving the yeah. planet. How you getting the cobalt? You know, it's like yeah, you don't yeah. want you don't want to know the answers to those questions. Um, you know, I I like having your perspective on the on the case because you have this incredibly prestigious background in law, and so it was one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you about this and get your take on it. But I said to a friend last week, you don't need to be a seasoned law executive, a an attorney, a uh, you know a Yale Law School graduate as you are, uh, to understand this one. You know, if this was the court of twelve-year-olds uh, on the playground at recess, and you just stepped back, take the contract and put it aside, take specific performance and put it aside, and just look. At just 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 look at the basics of what happened here, right? He comes out of left field. He says he wants to buy the company. He says, "Don't worry about due diligence. I don't fucking need it." Right off the bat, right? Yep. Then he says, "Ah, you know, I'm reconsidering." Then he says, "Oh, okay, no, I really want to do it." You know, now he's saying, "Oh, well, no, I want to back out now that there's this, you know, binding agreement." It's just like even twelve year olds. During recess on the playground would understand you're committed. You said you're going to do it. You can't just, you know, in and out and in and out and in and out. Because the, the point that you make, it puts tremendous stress and pressure. Not to mention the fact that, you know, on an aside, we know that the people working at Twitter are probably people that are more susceptible than normal to have their feelings hurt, be offended. You know, and some people, you know... God bless them at Twitter are probably having serious emotional breakdowns over the idea of Elon Musk running their company. You know, there are therapists doing yeah. double time since this deal was announced. I can assure you, um, you know, right. And I'm not Listen, saying that I'm, I'm not saying that to be crass. You know, I go to therapy myself. Right. But I, but but, the, you know, not to mention that the, the, the stress he has put this company under. And Enormous. That's a, He's devastated the company. He's gutted the company. Listen, I, by the way, I do. There are sometimes I agree with Elon Musk. I think Twitter overdid it with its censorship, and it's regrettable. And you see that a lot in social media. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree with him there, but the idea that he's the person who's going to solve it is laughable. Right. Number one, it's a really difficult problem to solve. Okay. If you look at it honestly, it's just not a simple solution. But second of all, a deal is a deal. And what is Delaware? What does Delaware have left if in a merger agreement with sophisticated lawyers on either side, sophisticated bankers and a very clear agreement about what he would do and the waiver of most of the due diligence, are they going to suddenly say, oh, well, he can he can weasel out of this one? What happens to every other merger agreement that's out there that comes right. before the Delaware courts now? They're meaningless, they right? They, be, they become happen. meaningless. Yeah, they can't allow this to happen. If this guy is allowed to get away with this, we have no more rule of law, okay? The rule of law is really important, and I think he has picked the one, he's picked a place where they really appreciate that, that contracts have to be honored and the law has to be followed. And, you know, I read people say, well, the Delaware uh, courts, they'll be afraid that he won't obey, so they, they'll be afraid to make a ruling against him. That's just bullshit. Kathleen McCormick certainly wasn't afraid of that in the Decopack case. They didn't even have financing. They busted their financing, and she said, that's your problem. Go figure it out. Did you, and, uh, you know, 
Did Go you ahead. did you listen to the the uh, her ruling on the hearing they just had about whether or not to expedite the case? Yes, and I I, I what first listened. What impression to did you get from her? What impression? Did well, you... she said this may be a case where monetary damages are not adequate to compensate the injured party. Hey, guess what? That that equals specific performance, Elon. Listen, she gave, she was, she did exactly what I thought. The parties got up and argued, basically their briefing, okay, which was really good, especially on the Twitter side. And she said, uh, instead of September, we'll do October. Instead of four days, we'll do five days. And believe me, that's a huge win for Twitter. That case, that the Twitter lawyers have to be just clicking their heels with joy over the way that that hearing went. And for her to announce that this looks like a case where where monetary damages may be an inadequate remedy that a so it's appropriate to be in front of my equitable court and b i'm going to consider equitable remedies like specific performance i think it was uh it was as it went as poorly for for tech for elon musk as you could possibly imagine yeah and so maybe she is the uh maybe she's where the buck stops for him who knows well you know Let's talk really quickly before we go about this New York Post article yesterday or today. Okay. Where there's, you know, they talk about this court as a shadowy court, right? I think the title of the article is, um, let's take a look. I've got it up here. Yeah. Inside the shadowy Delaware court set to decide Musk against Twitter fate by some youngster named Ben Kesslin. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, I the, saw that on, uh, that was the New York Post, right? Sorry. It is. So it is. So he, he, he says some things that are just really stupid here, okay? And basically, it's de- this article is designed to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the Court of Chancery in Delaware. What, so who's, who's behind that? I would love to know. Anyway, he says, the, in, in this article, he says, the judge won't really be bound by the law either. Oh, really? The judge isn't bound by the law? Read the meticulous decision that, that <laughs> Kathleen McCormick wrote in Decopac and all the legal citations. And by the way, of course, it's bound by the law. It goes from there to the Delaware Supreme Court, uh, which if the if, if the if the Court of Chancery hasn't followed the law, would reverse. So that's utterly idiotic. Then he quotes somebody, some lawyer who's been in front of the court a lot, saying that that the people you're arguing with in court, you're also having dinner parties with. He says it's a collegial environment, unfriendly to outsiders. Well, you know. Yes, it is a collegial environment. And, you know, what Delaware does very well is they employ Delaware lawyers. If you want to fight a case in oh, Delaware, yeah. you've got to have a Delaware law firm with you. So all those law firms in you know, Wilmington, they love the um, they love the uh, court of chancery. But so many courts are like that in small towns. It, it, the judges know everybody. OK, um, at least here you have an, a, a court that's balanced in terms of the partisan makeup. In, in many counties, you have all Democratic judges or all Republican judges. So that's idiotic. Then they, they talk about a boast that, Bi- that Hunter Biden made on his laptop, some message where he said he's got friends at the Court of Chancery and that's where he's going to go sue. Well, he never did sue there, number one. And he would have been sorely disappointed to learn that, you know, that in, in Delaware Chancery Court, they care about the law. They don't care about Hunter Biden. OK, I just the idea that it's corrupt is ridiculous. And then he cites some um, activist, a local activist, who um, had some lawsuit involving a, um, a protest outside Department of Justice employees' homes. So she, she's complaining that the, the Chancery Court, she was sued in Chancery Court because they hoped to shut her up. 
but she won the case. So how, you know, the outsider won the case he's talking about. <laughs> and then finally he quotes Al Sharpton and says, well, there aren't any blacks on the court. Oh, so now this is, that's, that's what we're down to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, guess what? It's, it, I, it's a far less hostile environment in the Delaware court of chancery. If you're black than it is in Elon Musk's Fremont factory, I can promise you that. So that certainly uh, seems to be the case. It's certainly a bold strategy, isn't it? To, to begin to yeah. disparage the uh, Delaware chancery yeah, court. That, I'm sure that they, they love that. that. That's a good way to, you know, make friends and influence people. Right. Well, all it'll take is one person who just, you know, she doesn't even, this judge doesn't even have to come into this case with any animus towards Musk. She's a professional. I'm sure even if she did, she would put it aside. All it takes is a shred of common sense here. And, and, and you know, so many things that he's done in the past, I hate to belabor the point, have been so egregious that I feel like we've had this discussion before. You know, with Solar City, with things like that, just just saying, hey, anybody with two eyes and a pulse can understand what's going on here. Yet nobody has stood in this guy's way, and so yeah, you know, I guess well, I'm, I'm, you know, go ahead, Chris. He settles cases all the time privately with non-disclosure agreements. Okay, so yes, Tesla does settle cases all the time, and Elon Musk probably does as well. You just don't read about them because the parties are forced to be quiet about it. So, um. There, you know, that's a little bit of a myth. He, he, at some point, his attorneys have persuaded him to settle some of these cases, and I have to believe they're sitting him down right now and telling him he's in deep trouble here, and you've got to find a way to settle. The problem is how you know you need a new shareholder vote. I think at Twitter to approve any lesser price, the the shareholders are going to vote on this fifty four dollars and twenty cent price, right? And they're hardening their viewpoint, and that ruling from the court would, I think, is given Twitter lots of spine and lots of backbone, they feel like they're going to win this case. So it's going to be hard to settle it. And you've got to find a creative way to do it and how you would make an agreement that you could, that you think would be enforced against Elon Musk. I don't know how you do that because the guy is going to try and weasel on everything, but um, it'll be, it's, We'll know soon. It's gonna, the trial's in October, so there's going to be just a huge amount of activity with the lawyers, uh, with you know Musk's lawyers trying to, to come up with all these experts who are going to talk about um, the bots that are not even relevant, and Twitter's lawyers saying to the court, hey, these aren't even the relevant issues. We've given them everything, and it, it's just going to be a heyday for lawyers between here and October, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't want to bring the guy's personal life into it because, I'm, you know, Personal life's your personal life, but you know that this last story that breaks about him impregnating one of his workers now, bringing his sum total of dependents, I think, up to nine at this point. Yeah, and, yeah. And then watching him parade around in Mykonos last week in the midst of all this, it just certainly doesn't paint a picture of a guy whose whose moral compass and who's you know just he doesn't seem concerned. He sure doesn't seem concerned about consequences, and I guess. Look, me and you, maybe if we were the richest people in the world, maybe our, our, our priorities would be different. But I would like to think that, that mine wouldn't be that different. And, uh, and so I think it just goes to show that, you know, he, he has this, this tragic kind of hubris flaw. And I think eventually, you know, eventually it catches up at some point. Look, you know, I, 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 let's not do too much of the personal stuff, but just his relationship with Amber Heard. I mean, to talk about two people who just deserved each other, who were perfect <laughs> for each other. 
and it was so seedy and slimy and he does, you know he he has no ethical compass he's just you know I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist but this has every hallmark of a raging narcissist and um it's what it takes to they're not it's not curable he he is going to be who he is and um and it, it won't end well my last question to you is can you just talk a little bit about and this is shifting gears on Tesla a little bit, but but I think it's important because we we usually talk about it, and we haven't discussed it. Can you just give a quick overview on how you think the competitive landscape for the company has changed now, and and what that means for them, just operating in a vacuum as a car company? Yeah, I I mean I think obviously they're in much better shape than they were a few years ago, where they were close to bankruptcy, which they solved with, you know, with the promise of robo taxis. Um, I think there are many vehicles now, electric vehicles, that are being produced because everybody has to produce them, and they are better than Teslas at a at a price that's equal to or less than what you have to pay for a Tesla. Um, we see that from so many companies, and in Europe, you see Tesla's market share fading fast, and Europe faces real recession problems. Also, in China, you see lots of very um, nimble competitors building EVs too. And Tesla has nothing at lower price points, which you really are going to need in the Chinese market. In the US, Tesla, I think, still has the big advantage of the um, superchargers. The, a lot of people complain that they love the Ford Mach-E, for example, Mustang, but they feel like the charging infrastructure is not adequate. And uh, I think that problem is being solved, um, but Tesla still has a, an advantage in the US. But yeah, it's, it's just going to be another electric vehicle maker, not the most sophisticated, not the most reliable, not with the best service. And I see its market share continuing to shrink which, with more pressure on margins. And, you know, they're going to be, a, a, you know, they'll be another automaker, priced like an automaker. When will that happen? I don't know. But it's happening. The, the, they're being shrunk down to size. And the, the phenomenal growth that they've experienced, is, which is impressive. Well, you see the first quarter where they went backwards. They have some good excuses for that. But you, the, the more telling thing to me is their loss of market share in Europe, where all this EV competition is really eating away at them in a, in a, in a very important way. And you have to remember all the competitors have much more incentive to sell cars in Europe with right. all the mandates and subsidies there now than they do in the United States. And... Um, once it shifts to the United States uh, and, and there's more of those EVs available here from other automakers, I, it's, this, you know, this problem has been building for a long time. Yeah. So, All right. Well, well put. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming back on. It's awesome to, to catch back up with you. We're going to bring it in just under an hour here as we plan. I know you're a man that likes to keep to a plan and likes to have things organized. Uh, uh, and it is... Uh, you know, it is the weekend, but uh, it, hey, listen, it's great to have you back on. And hopefully once this case starts to make its way through trial, we can do this again and kind of maybe discuss yeah. it once on the fly before, um, yeah, before the decision be comes do. down. Chris, always good to talk with you and mm. very the very best to you. You're doing such great work. I love reading your pieces and we'll talk again soon. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. That was the one, the only Montana skeptic. Can't believe... Haven't had him on in months, but this seemed like the right time to do it. 
So uh, I want to thank him again for coming on. Thank you guys so much for listening. I will be back soon. I promise. I know I've been away for a little while dealing with some shit, but uh, got that behind me now, I think. And I am looking forward to blue skies and uh, shit. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. What is he saying, Major League? He's saying this game brought to you by, oh, hell, I don't have it. The hell with it. (laughs) I'm out of here, fools. Peace.